The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. How y'all doing? Cool. Is it cool if I move this joint right here? All right, my man. Let me qualify. I'm fluent in three languages, English, Ebonics, and Evangelicalism. Even though I'm Mexican, I'm not fluent in Spanish. So let me qualify. When I said move that joint right here, I was not talking about weed. All right, I was talking about the table. But context is everything. Context is everything, okay? Very important to understand. Um, If you could do me the privilege, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? I'm going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's a very familiar story, the parable of the the Good Samaritan. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV version of the scriptures this morning. But I want to express right quick as you're turning there or typing there, depending on what device you've got in your hands, is that I'm very humbled and appreciative to be here uh, this morning with you all. Uh, Just the financial investment into our work. I mean, you get it, right? Like you understand, you know, you're a church that is planting the gospel as you're planting your families. You're seeking to see lives transformed by the gospel, but also by God, the Holy Spirit, as you are living life here in Burbank and the surrounding areas. And where God has strategically called our squad and all of our families is the area uh, in South L.A. County where Compton and Long Beach hold hands, where Paramount, Bellflower, Lakewood, all the way out to Carson, like all South L.A. County, we're looking to engage and see the Holy Spirit do tangible work in those environments. And the reality of having support, man, is so encouraging. It's so deeply, uh, man, uplifting to my soul to know that there's saints in Burbank and areas up here Um, that are riding with us, that are praying for us. And I want you to know that our church believes in mutual edification, that we also want to serve Story City Church as well, not just in word, but in deed. And so we're looking forward to partnering together. Um, I'm very prayerful for our city with all the issues that are going on with uh, police shootings, with videos gone viral, and all the tensions that are in our nation. I know we're just one thing away from LA erupting right now. And unfortunately, there's been a couple of killings lately. Uh, You got the one in Pasadena and the one in South LA off 107th Street. And so these are some tensions that are present tense reality for us as the body of Christ to not close our eyes and hide our heads in the sand that we call the gospel message, but rather to say, how do we engage one individual at a time? What is the biblical response? What is the believer's response? How do we proclaim the message and the implications of the gospel in a broken society that is not looking for solutions from the scriptures? They write off the scriptures. They don't see this as the exclusive means of salvation through Jesus Christ. He is one of many options. This is the tension that we wrestle with, and God has not called us to be in isolation away from that tension. He's called us to stay in the tension, to navigate, and still somehow be a billboard, a living hashtag for the power of the gospel, and that's what he's called us to do. And so I say all of that to say that there's not just one church commissioned to L.A. County alone, but we literally need tens of thousands of churches that understand the gospel, that seek to move with compassion to meet the needs of the people in order to express an appeal for them to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. So I want you to know that you got family down in South L.A. County that are riding with you, and we praise God for you as much as you praise God for us. So all that was like an appetizer for this joint the text this morning, right? All right. Let me read the text, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig into the meal of God's word. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, 
what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, by circumstance, what had happened was, you see that there was a priest going down that road. And we saw him, the victim, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, the victim, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, which is like a motel, to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is like two days' wages, and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I know that it is inspired. I know that it is inerrant. And I know that it is infallible. But I know that I am fallible. I am a sinful human being. I am broken. I am marred by the reality, Lord God, that I have not known you as Savior my whole life. And so I know that there are blind spots in my ability to communicate. I know, Father God, that uh, the reality of holding your word and being charged to commission and speak forth your word is a lofty task, Lord God, one that is very, very heartbreaking in one sense, but at the same time, I know that I'll be judged more strictly. So I pray, Father God, that you would allow me to be nothing more than a microphone to amplify your word to the people. And it is my prayer, Holy Spirit, as I declare my dependency on you, that you would mobilize every person in this room to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word for the glory of God. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So <clears throat> as I think through the reality of the tension that we see. In our nation, specifically dealing with the, the, the ethnic tensions, there's a term that is thrown out that I disagree with for two main reasons. This is all a precursor to this text. The term is racial reconciliation. People express, we need racial reconciliation. The government says it. Many people in the church say it. People of other faiths, philosophies, and practices, or people that are atheistic say, yes, we need to reconcile the races, specifically in the context of the United States of America. Now, I have an issue with the term racial reconciliation, two issues to be exact, and it's the very phrase racial and then reconciliation. Now, let me tell you why. First and foremost, let's deal with the term racial. I believe, and I believe the scriptures communicate this very clearly, and God has breathed out the scriptures, so therefore it is the heart of God that there is one race, the human race, and within this one human race, there is a multitude of gorgeous ethnic diversity that God has created out of his genius for his glory. Now, let me tell you what I am not saying. I am not saying God is colorblind, and I am not saying Jesus is colorblind. In fact, I think when we express a colorblind reality, we are actually speaking against the scriptures itself. The reason I say that is because looking at this text, we're going to see that Jesus was not colorblind. And saying that, oh, I don't see race, I just see a person, that's not true. Because God has elected us to be the ethnic makeup that we have. 
So what we are called to do is embrace it and affirm it and stay away from the two polemic poles, which is ignore ethnicity or idolize ethnicity. We're not called to do both. We're called to embrace it and affirm it. So the reason that I can't dig the term racial is because, again, I don't think that there's more than one race in the human race. I say that there's one with a multitude of ethnicities, and that goes back to a gospel conversation that we root in a phrase called the Imago Dei, which means the image of God. In Genesis chapter 6 verses, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, what we see is that God says, let us make man in our own image. Now, to be made in the image of God does not mean that we are called to replicate God, but rather that we represent God. If I threw on an Eric Dickerson jersey, and for some of y'all that are young, he was a dude that you can Google him. He, was a, he killed the game as a running back for the Los Angeles Rams. Before the whole migration out to St. Louis, now they're back. Eric Dickerson. If I put on an Eric Dickerson throwback jersey, does that make me Eric Dickerson? Nah. Does it mean that I got his bank account? <laughs> no, I don't have his bank account. Do I have all of the accolades and the prestige and awards that he has earned by his own work? No. I'm just simply representing a player or a team. Maybe I like the jersey because it would match my shoes, right? So the fact that I would wear a jersey does not mean that I am replicating that individual. When the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, inasmuch as me wearing an Eric Dickerson jersey does not make me Eric Dickerson, being made in the image of God does not make me God. Rather, what it means is I am distinct as a human being from every other form of creation that God has created. Human beings, humanity, the one human race, we are the crowning act of God's creation. Because it is to us alone that God has shared certain attributes of himself that he withheld from every other form of creation. Attributes such as personality, spirituality, morality, rationality, kindness, compassion, love. When you begin to see these aspects, you see a distinction from the rational components that we have as human beings to build cities, complex grids. Streets that are at gridlock almost every day. Freeways that are parking lots. Like, this is a reality of us using the human intellect that God has given us in a snapshot form to represent him, not to replicate him. So when I say that there's one race, the human race, but it's made up of a gorgeous reality of multitudes of ethnicities, I want to replace the term racial and racial reconciliation, and I want to replace it with ethnic. But then let's deal with the term reconciliation. Reconciliation means to be reconciled or to be reconciliated. Conciliation takes place when animosity, distrust, and hate are removed and individuals that were warring come together to focus on one common mission and vision and they move forward in harmony and in unity. When I think about that, I think about the fact that there in American history has never been a point of conciliation for the ethnicities here on this soil. From the first civilization nations that had their land stolen to the reality of slaves that were brought forth to the the mid-Atlantic passage, you have this reality in addition to all the multitudes and the ethnicities of the individuals who immigrated or migrated, there has never been a at-large charge to bring a consensus to remove animosity, distrust, and hate. So if we are saying that we're fighting for reconciliation, even as non-believers crying for reconciliation, it's an impossible task because there's never been a point of conciliation. What are we being reconciled back to when all we know is broken and fractionedness? So I remove reconciliation and I replace it with conciliation. So I believe the church's response to the reality of the ethnic tensions is not racial reconciliation, but ethnic conciliation. 
Now, one more asterisk, if you will, is because we know that reconciliation is a gospel term. It's like, wait a minute, why are we going to do away with reconciliation when Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians? Yes and amen, and it further drives my point home. Because when you think about the human race in total, when was there a time in our existence, in our history, all the way through the corridors of antiquity that allowed the human race holistically to have a right, uninterrupted relationship with God? It was in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. So the human race has a conciliation point to look back to which is the time when there was no sin on planet earth, when there was no separation between God and man in Genesis 1 and 2. But then the reality of what we see is in Genesis chapter 3, through the act of disobedience from Adam, there was a separation, there was a breaking. So that's why we are called to make appeals to the human race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of employment status, that you have been separated from God, you're a natural-born sinner, you're dead in sin, it was already in the fabric of your genetic makeup, according to Psalm 51.5. Psalm 58.3 says, from the womb the wicked come forth speaking lies, which means every single one of our native language is lying. Jesus says in John 8, 34, that anyone that commits a sin is a slave to sin. Not only are we spiritually dead, separated from God, we're slaves to sin, we're addicted to sin, and we love it, and we don't want to give up this addiction. All of this is the precursor for the gospel message that says that Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, that he allowed himself to take upon the punishment that was due for us on himself. And the reality then through the glorious resurrection that was literal, visible, historical is the fact that we can now say be reconciled to God. How? Through the work of Jesus Christ. What's the point of conciliation? You can look back to the garden to see what that relationship of oneness looked like with God, our creator, our father. So thinking through that aspect, I want to define three terms and then we will dig into the text. The first is animosity. Animosity is dislike that is put on display. Distrust. Distrust is viewing people as suspects until they're proven innocent. Hostility. Hostility is expressed or acted out hate. And I believe that ethnic conciliation will become evident when the members of the body of Christ stop withholding compassion from each other. So if there's anyone that I think that should live out this mission, it's the church first. If anyone can say, we do have a monopoly on the cure for racism. It is the gospel. We need to live out the implications and the evidence of that remedy first. It's one thing to call the world to something that it's impossible for them to live out. It's another thing to call the church that we are prescribed to live out. Because right now, ethnic conciliation is actually a positional reality. When you think about the church, you have to think of the fact that we are a snapshot of heaven. We're a brochure of heaven. And when you look at God's Instagram feed, which is the book of Revelation, you look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. What you see is the Apostle John looking at the expanse of glory. And he sees individuals who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, both before the crucifixion because they put their trust in God's forthcoming Messiah. And then those of us who look back at the crucifixion and resurrection because we put our trust in the fact that he is the promised Messiah, that he is returning for us. And when we spend eternity in glory, John gives us a snapshot of what that's going to look like. And John says that there is a multitude before him that is innumerable and that there are individuals in this multitude that are from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So the reality of heaven is that it is a city that is multi-ethnic and multi-generational. 
If that is where we are going to be throughout eternity, we as the church are the appetizer of heaven. We're the foretaste. We're the snapshot of heaven. We must reflect where we are going. So positionally, ethnic conciliation is a reality in heaven. The problem is practically here on earth, we're still segregated in the church, and that's a problem. So the first thing I want us to look at is the compassion in our character. I believe that Christ is calling us to have compassion in our character because this speaks to the issue of animosity. Because conciliation, again, cannot take place when conflicting parties do not overcome animosity, distrust, and hostility. So compassion in our character. Animosity. Avoiding people who are different from us by creating micro-communities to purposefully exclude them from our fellowship. So let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. After we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to look at the practice of God's Son. And after we look at the practice of God's Son, then we're going to look at the prescription for God's saints. And we're going to do that three times. So the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 31, the priest and the Levite both avoid the man whose Jesus purposefully withholds the ethnicity of the victim. Now, I want to give you a cultural backdrop so you understand. At this time, when Jesus is sharing this parable, when this dude confronts Jesus, and he's a scribe, he is a lawyer, which means it is his duty in life to rightly look at the scriptures and rightly interpret the law. Think of the sense of the lawyer who knows the code, who knows the municipal principalities and everything that is going on in their constituency that they serve or they're contracted to help. Like, they know the law. That's their livelihood. So for a lawyer to ask Jesus a question about the law, it may seem like Jesus is being cynical, like, bruh, how do you read it? It's like me telling LeBron James if he were to come up to me and say, hey, DA, how do I dunk a basketball? I'm like, come on, bro. Why are you going to ask me how to dunk a basketball? I'm 5'7 on a good day, all right? Like... I ain't got the hops you got, bro. If I jumped as hard as I could, I couldn't even touch your shoulder with my feet, man. So, like, I ain't got no, I'm vertically challenged, dog, in every way you can think of. So, Brian, Brian, for you to come to me, Brian, ask me how to dunk, like, all you want me to do is set you up to say, bro, you that dude, you know how to dunk. I got memes of you dunking on dudes. I've got YouTube videos on repeat showing my kids how you dunk on dudes. It's foolish for you to come to me and ask me, ADA, how do you dunk a basketball, dog? Come on, Brian. Come on, man. You know better than that. Obviously, you just want me to give you big ups. This is arguably the heart of the man that approached Jesus. So going back, Jesus is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. So him withholding the ethnic identity of the victim is not an issue because culturally, people would have already assumed that the victim is Jewish. Inasmuch as you begin a dialogue about an event that you happen in throughout your day, if you do not think that people do not make it about ethnicity, or we'll just use the common phrase, race. Watch, purposefully withhold the ethnicity of the person you had an exchange with, and then watch somebody say, what what were they? What do you mean, what were they? A human being. No, you know what I mean. What were they? Oh, it was a man. No, like, was he black? Was he white? Was he Korean? What was he? Like, why, why are you so curious? Why are you so charged up about the ethnic identity? What is it going to appease your heart when I say, oh, this person was Filipino? Oh, really? Like, see, like, it's like, man, you're already dealing with the presuppositions that people want to act like they don't have. I'm talking about in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about the world. This is within the body of Christ. In addition to this, so they would have assumed that. So here you see Jesus saying, here is a priest and a Levite. Those who were dedicated to the work of God, vocationally, they see a victim and they pass by on the other side. 
Now, we don't know why they did it. So we're not going to parse some speculation on, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. We don't know. Jesus doesn't say. But what he does say is they took the volitional will to say, I am getting out of the way of that victim and I'm going to keep it moving. Animosity is often displayed when we can do the same thing, is that if somebody surfaces something that we've sidestepped and we can say, you know what, I'm sorry, but then we give a 30-second apology followed by a 30-minute apologetic for why we did what we did. We're trying to rationalize to that individual rather than just staying in the moment of repentance. I don't know why they do what they do in this text, but I can tell you why I do what I do because I can speak for my own shortcomings. And easily, even if it's something as silly as, did you eat the last donut out the box, Damon, when my wife tells me that, I can say, yeah, I did, but man, let me tell you, man, I deserve that donut because, and I give like an airtight logical case with solid premises and a great conclusion. And I'll spend 30 minutes making my argument airtight for this action rather than just saying, you know what, I was wrong because we're supposed to be on this diet we're supposed to be doing this, and I'm trying to wordsmith my way out of your disappointment so that my conscience can be appeased. And I think one thing we got to do as the body of Christ is we got to learn to stay in the moment of apology a lot longer. We got to be able to lament together and say, we haven't had it right. There's issues in my heart God is still surfacing, like I need to walk in vulnerability and stay in that tension because growth takes place in that tension. So what we see is Luke 10, 33. The good Samaritan, he saw the man and he had compassion and he pushed through all the cultural animosity. Here's what's amazing. Jesus withheld the ethnicity of the victim. Obviously, the Jews understood that the Levite and the priest were Jewish from the 12 tribes of Israel. Obviously, one was from the tribe of Levi. But then you see that Jesus grammatically emphasizes by leading in the Greek with Samaritan. He leads with the ethnicity of the hero of the story because at this point, the culture would have assumed he's the villain. So the fact that Jesus would lead with that, let me just be very candid so you can understand the framework of what was going on in the, in the minds of the people of that day. Because there was such hatred between the Jewish nation and the Samaritans, all because they represented the Samaritans, the northern ten tribes of Israel that never had a righteous king in Israeli history, who then got conquered by the Assyrians, who were very wicked and vicious, and they intermarried with them, and they had a mixed blood. So it was half-breeds, and they couldn't stand them because of their idolatry. They would even not let them into Jerusalem to worship in the temple to give their right sacrifices to God. They excluded them. They excommunicated them. They hated them. It would almost be like if somebody were to say, oh, you had DA to come and preach at your church, right? Like, he's Mexican. Like, why would you have a wet back in your church this morning? Like, why would you have a spick in your church? Those ethnic slurs, this would have been the natural, like, rumblings in the mind of the culture when he said, Samaritan, oh, that thug? Oh, that N-word? Oh, that spick? Like, those pejorative terms is naturally would have been brought out when Jesus said the ethnicity of this man that he knew would be the hero, but the people assumed would always be the villain. He then goes on. The reality is that the Samaritan saw that the man who was a victim, an image bearer of God, he saw a fellow human being in need, and his need transcended the ethnic reality of this man that was laying there victimized, half dead. 
He was like, it doesn't matter his past, whether it's criminal or not. It doesn't matter what he was doing while walking on the road. This man is a victim he was taken advantage of. He's about to die. I could care less about his past. I could care less about the circumstances surrounding. Nobody's helping. This is a fellow human being that needs help. He pushed through all that animosity to help him. It reminds me of the practice of God's son. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, Jesus basically oversimplified. He's on tour. He's going through Galilee. He's got the top of the charts buzzing right now on iTunes. iHeartRadio is pumping everything this brother's saying. Like, he's got a massive following, critical mass. Everybody's loving Jesus. Why? He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's feeding the people. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And all of a sudden, Jesus steps back. And in this narrative, most often the, the emphasis when it's preached is pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Yes and amen, because we need more laborers. But the front end of this narrative says something I think more powerful that really then leverages the reality for us to pray and then serve as those who were in the mission field. See, it says that Jesus saw the multitudes and he had compassion. Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were abused and harassed. Now, the word saw is a verb. And it's written in the Greek in what we call a contemporaneous participle. It's big words that mean this. In that narrative, in that story, Jesus is never divorced from his compassion. His compassion was on him everywhere he went like his clothes, like the hair on his body. But let's think about it. Jesus is fully God, so he's fully omniscient. So what does that mean about his level of compassion? Let me tell you what it means. Jesus knew out of all the multitudes, everyone that would approach him that just wanted a handout but never wanted him. How many wanted a healing but they didn't want him as Messiah? How many just wanted breakfast but they didn't want to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He knew that and he never withheld compassion from a single individual. Now, let's juxtapose that with us, finite, broken, fallen human beings who were not omniscient, we're limited in all of our faculties, and here's the reality. We try to play the role of sovereign. I'll be honest. I see somebody standing outside, I'll work for food. I'm a veteran. Hungry kids back under the bridge. Like, all these signs, and it's like, man, you just want this for alcohol. Man, you just want this for drugs. Man, you just want this for this. And I'm like, man. But then the good theology comes in, no, have compassion, uh, but you got to be a good steward of your money too, Damon. Like, now all these things are going on when I'm sitting there about to get on the freeway. And I'm engaging in this dialogue with myself. I mean, I'm sure people are like, that dude must be possessed because he's sitting there arguing with himself. <laughs> and so there's been times when I've walked through the park and I've made sandwiches and banana and bottled waters. And I'm walking through the park and telling people, man, I got free food, man. I don't want nothing else. I ain't saying, hey, come to my church to get some chicken. Like, I ain't saying that. I'm like, hey, you hungry? Do you want something to eat? Yeah, hey, I got a sandwich. It's healthy, man. This is not processed meat. Like, it's a good sandwich. This is good fruits, good bananas, great water, man. Like, hey, this is for you, man. I just wanted to bless you today. So there's times that we have to think through those processes. But overall, the transcendent reality is where is my heart? Where is my heart? Do I have compassion on these lost people? Do I have compassion on the person sitting under the bridge? Even to the point that my wife has challenged me by saying we need to have care packets ready to roll whenever we see someone. That although we may not carry cash on us, because often I stop carrying cash so I can say, I ain't got no cash, dog. I'm sorry, man. Like, like even thinking about that excuse to say, I ain't got no money, but what I do got is I got this care packet, man. 
Like, if you're hungry, I want to bless you. I want to help you. I got three seconds before they start blowing their horns at me because the light's green and I got to get in the carpool lane. But until then, take this. I pray that it's a blessing. Because when we do that, if they take it, they take it. If they eat the food, they eat the food. If we put literature in there about the fact that God has not forsaken them, that God loves them, point them in the direction of maybe a local church around that freeway, I don't know. There's certain things, but it takes rationality to think through that process rather than I ain't got no cash or just ignore them and turn the music up and act like we don't see them or start scrolling on our phone. That's a lack of compassion. Amen. So, continuing on. Jesus, when he engaged with people and they were in need, he didn't just tell them, hey, the gospel's the answer, and then he walks away. He didn't say that, but that's what's said in our day, especially when minorities are grieving, whether it's online or in personal spaces. Man, you know what? The gospel's the answer. All right, man, and let's keep it moving. Wait a minute. Tell me how the gospel speaks to racism. Tell me how the gospel speaks to a lack of diversity in our interpersonal relationships. Tell me why the dinner table at our home is not diversified to reflect the kingdom of God. Why is it we only hang with people look, that look like us, may be in our same tax bracket? Like, why is it that we're so tolerant of people that may look like us and sympathetic, but when somebody's different and they express something, that we write them off because we can't share sympathy with or for them? as the body of Christ. So the reality then for the prescription for God's saints is this. We're not on mission. We have no right to withhold compassion from anyone, especially from another human being, especially with a different ethnicity than ours, especially within the body of Christ. Instead, Romans 15, 7 says, receive one another just as Jesus also received us to the glory of God. When we're inconsistent with receiving others, we're inconsistent with the nature of our God because God received us at our lowest point when we were dead in sin. God gets the glory when we embrace those around us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Jesus Christ forgave you. When we see the needs of others blatantly, we're called to extend mercy in some capacity with those needs. When we're offered, we must no longer understand that when we offer somebody assistance and they reject us, or even if we open up our heart and we speak our own personal story and somebody tries to fact check us. Let me pause right quick for station identification on that. Like, I've been married by God's grace for 13 years and some change. I love my baby girl. I love my bride. But you know what? Early on in my marriage, I kept making this mistake. When she would express her heartfelt issues, I would fact check her emotional arguments. Uh, brothers, I don't know how long y'all been married. If you engaged or if you single, listen to me. It's only by God's grace I'm alive and breathing today. Because when she would say, you make me feel that. You know, technically, I don't make you feel that way. You use your own free will to feel that way. Now, as lighthearted as that is, that caused damage to my wife's heart. Now, imagine when minorities come up to brothers and sisters of a dominant culture perspective and express that I've been racially profiled. I did everything I could that the police officer, and I still got this, or this still happened, or that still happened. Or you know what, I, I do have anger, I do have anxiety rise up when I see a cop car following me on the freeway, like, like, oh, well, man, if you would just, listen, can I just talk? Can I just express this? We're shutting down the lines of communication. But here's the reality, 
is that we need to open the lines of communication. We need to listen to each other's stories. We need to say, man, there's space for both of our stories to exist. And in God's grace, may the writing of our stories from this moment on include a healthy, vibrant relationship with us as believers engaging in life together. We have to learn to stop being passive, aggressive, and quietly breaking away from people when they offend us in the body of Christ. I can't do that in my marriage. And we have to stop looking at the church as brick and mortar that we go to on one day a week. But we got to see the church as family. When you begin to recognize the reality of the word disciple in the New Testament, you see it through the Gospels, then you see it in Acts, but in the epistles, you don't see it no more. Why? Because it's been replaced by the phrase brother, sister. There's a familial component. I can't divorce my kids when they hurt my feelings. I can't divorce my wife when she hurts my feelings or when she breaks my heart and neither her to I. Now, I know we live in a litigation society that says, yes, you can, but I'm like, no, no, no. My conviction to stay with my wife through thick and thin supersedes the reality of hurt feelings. So I'm committed to the relationship and the essence of my commitment is seen in those moments of hurt and pain that we walk through them together. We gotta do that as the body of Christ. Next is compassion in our communication. This deals with distrust, profiling an entire group of people based on bad interactions with a few from that shared group. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Culturally, the Samaritan probably faced persecution when he would be walking up and down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. In this way, people would hurl ethnic slurs at him. People would walk on the other side of the street him. They would see him. They maybe clench their money pouch. Why? Because they had a they had a presupposition about this entire ethnic people group, and they would express that publicly, verbally. Sometimes they would attack people. So here you even see the reality in light of these experiences, the Samaritan pressing through even maybe his own prejudice against an ethnicity that for his whole life has always looked down on him and oppressed him, that he would see that the victim has that same ethnicity. He didn't say, that's what you get for treating us this way. But rather, he went to him, and he met him, he linked eyes with him, he embraced him, he helped him, he held him, and then he took him to a place of safety. Distrust is displayed in our communication when we say things like, oh, you know how they are. Oh, that's why you can't trust them. Or oh, they'll only be your friend until others of them come around, and then they're going to turn their back on you so fast. Those kind of things. Let's look at the practice of God's son. If anybody could have profiled an entire group of people, it was Jesus. And the entire group of people, the human race. How? Well, the reality that every single one of us was born dead in sin. Sin is not racist. Sin has saturated every single human being. So the reality of sin is the fact that now you have an entire population of people, the whole human race, that God is separated from. And it's not a presupposition. It is an actual fact that we're pursuing sinfulness and not a holy and righteous God who created us. But rather than just separating himself, he actually engaged with us by putting on human flesh. And the fact of Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul juxtaposes with the phrase, but God. He's saying earlier in the passage before, Maybe for a good dude, maybe somebody might die for a good person. For example, if somebody said, I literally have just found the cure for cancer, for AIDS, 
for all these viruses that have never been cured, I found the cures for each of them, but they were held up at gunpoint. Somebody may say, no, wait, they haven't put those drugs out. I'll jump and I'll take the bullet so that dude could live because he's going to heal people with those medicines. Perhaps somebody would do that for a person that would benefit humanity. But what about somebody who's foul? What about the child molester? What about the sexual offender? What about the drug dealer? What about the serial misogynist? What about the atheist? What about the Muslim? What about anybody that rejects the premise of Christianity? What about them? What about even Christians who were born dead in sin? And it's only by God's grace that we've embraced the true righteous truth of Jesus Christ. All of us are together in this fact that we were born dead in sin, separated from God. And while we were in that position, Jesus loved us and died for us. This is the essence of Romans 5.8. He loved us at our lowest, so therefore he will love us for the long haul. We're called to do the same thing. We must stop being reactive when it comes to revealing our ethnic prejudice, the issues in our hearts when a video goes viral or when an issue arises in pop culture. Rather, we need to be proactive. Proactive is what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Brothers and sisters, what we have to do is ask God to search our hearts and surface our hurts. Be honest about the sinfulness that God reveals in all of our hearts. Confess them and walk in repentance. And then as we go forward, Romans 8, 9 through 13 says the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh. So we don't have to walk in the prejudice aspects that we once walked in, even as believers. We can take those things to the cross and we can walk in freedom from them, which then will finally give us compassion in our community. This is how we deal with hostility, abusing those that we're prejudiced against, including even neglecting them and their needs. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 36, Jesus asked the scribe and the lawyer who sought to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Let me give you this quick cultural backdrop. The definition of neighbor, according to the religious leaders of the day, was any good full-blood ethnic Jew that was clicked up with their denomination, with their theological framework. If you were a full-blooded Jew and you were all good with the Pharisees or the Sadducees camp, you weren't a Herodian, you weren't these zealots, you weren't a Samaritan, you weren't a full-blooded Gentile, if you fit this narrow framework, you're my neighbor. So if you're my neighbor and Jesus said, well, then tell me the law, bro, you know what it looks like, you're a lawyer. And he says, man, love your God holistically and love your neighbor as yourself. He is saying love your neighbor with the understanding my neighbor are the religious Jews that are in this small sect of people. So as long as I love this small sect of people and nobody else, I am actually within the framework of God's commands. So Jesus challenges him by telling him the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He gives three individuals. Two out of the three actually fit the cultural definition of neighbor. One does not. And then Jesus politely asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the one that fell among thieves? The lawyer said, and I quote, he who showed mercy. He who showed mercy. Three things that that answer reveals. It shows the prejudiceness of the heart of the lawyer. How 
Number one, he is saying, he who showed mercy. He didn't say anything about the Samaritan. He rejected even saying the ethnic identity of the hero of the story. Number two, he, in admitting that it was the Samaritan, actually showed that his definition of neighbor was wrong because God himself was in the flesh showing him, I don't care what the other leaders say, you're all wrong. Your neighbor is your fellow human being, not just those of your same ethnicity that believe theologically the same things you do. You're called to love all of humanity universally. And then number three, remember his initial question, what must I do to have eternal life? How do I get, in, how do I get into heaven? How do I, quote, unquote, get saved, to use jargon from our day? And he says, to, Jesus says, obey the whole law. This dude says, I have obeyed the whole law. Really, he hadn't obeyed the law. He didn't love God holistically because the natural consequence of loving God holistically is loving your neighbor, fellow humanity as yourself. So therefore, he did not have salvation. So as we think about that, we look at the practice of God's son in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Jesus' work tore down every wall of hostility, ethnocentricity that kept Jews and Gentiles segregated in worshiping God. Jesus has destroyed it. In verse 17, it says, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. This is a clear reference to those who were afar off are the Gentiles. Those who were near are the Jews. Briefly, before I close, it reminds me of a time that we held a barbecue at our crib. We had a barbecue and invited two families. This was back in the day before we had GPS on our cell phones. So people had to actually get your address on the phone. They would go to this website called MapQuest.com, went to MapQuest.com, got directions. Then they clicked this button that magically allowed paper to come out this dinosaur thing called a printer. And the printer would have various colors of ink and a map and directions literally to the letter like expressing how to get from point A to point B. So I got a phone call at the crib with this thing called a cordless phone, right? It was this phone you pulled up, but it was like magically connected to this thing that was like plugged in by a wire to my wall. And they called and they was like, hey, bro, like we lost. I don't know where we are. And I'm like, well, tell me what's around you. Man, we're at this church's chicken by this gas station. I said, oh, you're at this intersection. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you're literally a block away from the crib. But listen, when you pull out, it's a one way and you can't drive over the concrete median. You're going to have to take a right, go two blocks, take a left and cut through the neighborhood. Just stay where you are because you're going to get further lost because it's hard to navigate to where my house is. So stay where you are. I'm going to hop in the whip, which is a car, and I'm going to come and I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to lead you back to the crib. So I did that. As soon as I got back in the crib, my wife came back, said the second family's on the phone. Hopped on the phone. I'm like, hey, where you at? My dude was like, man, my wife got me lost, dog. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, where's she at right now? Man, she's looking at me crazy, dude. I'm like, okay, look. Two things. Number one, apologize to her. Tell her you blacked out, you tripping, you don't know what you just said, and you apologize for anything that came out of your mouth over the last 15 seconds. He was like, I ain't doing that. I said, no, listen to me, bro. I ain't going to see you today, possibly never again. If you do not acknowledge your wrongdoing, you just threw your wife under the bus, bro. You threw all shade on her. You need to ask her for forgiveness. So he's like, I'm sorry, babe. I was tripping. You know, it is what it is, but I'm like, I'm a man, but I'm telling you I'm sorry. I, forgive me, please. She was like, mm-hmm, I know that's right. So, like, that's all she said. So I said, where are you at, man? He was like, dog, we at this McDonald's and da-da-da. I'm like, oh, man, you like 10 minutes down the freeway. I'm like, Ugh. I said, stay where you are. I'm going to hop in the whip. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to lead you back to the crib. I'm going to show you. Just follow me. He's like, all right, bet. Let him back to the crib. We had a great time of barbecue. Phenomenal day of fellowship. What's that got to do with Jesus' work? That is a perfect illustration. The Jews were like that family that was a block away. 
They actually had the directions in their hand, but they were waiting for Messiah to show them how to get into a right relationship with God, to be brought to the crib, which is the household of faith, the church, the body of Christ. Although they had directions and they were a block away, they were still not in complete fellowship. They needed the Messiah to leave the comforts of the crib to lead them back. But we were like those Gentiles that were 10 minutes down the freeway, had no way of knowing where we were, how, what was going on. We were stumbling through the directions, but we needed someone to guide us. And Jesus said, I'm leaving the crib to come to meet you where you are. Follow me back. And you, just like the Jews, will now come into fellowship and you will be invited into the kingdom of God equally. That's what the work of Jesus Christ has done. So what do we do? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Literally in the Greek, that phrase is pantata ethne, which really means every ethnicity. We should never withhold discipleship from any individual. Matter of fact, the more diverse we are in our discipleship relationships, the more we are looking like heaven and showing the world the church alone has the, the cure for racism, which is the gospel And the evidence is discipleship relationships. God has brought the nations to our cities. Who better than the body of Christ to reach them and engage with them? The reality is we must understand as I close that we as the church can serve Burbank, Los Angeles County, the Valley, everywhere in between. We can serve our city best by showing them a snapshot of heaven as we resemble that reality. In addition to that, It is my prayer and appeal that we look at Galatians 3, 26, and 28 as the body of Christ, and we see that there is no division of walls between economics, ethnicity, or gender. God does not show favoritism for any of those things. And when a believer comes to Jesus, may we stop using Galatians 3, 28 as a way to wash away everybody's ethnic identity. Because I'll be very honest with you. We need to affirm the ethnic identity of believers and say, God has made you this ethnicity embrace it because it reflects his creative genius. There was a heritage and a history and a story with the ancestry that you represent and you can actually engage this with your children to show them how your ethnicity actually is a creative genius of the God who created them. Your ethnicity is apologetics for atheism because it is a God who wired us this way. In addition to this, we must understand that practically Galatians 3.28 has been used as a way to say ethnicity means nothing when you come to Jesus. But I would make this appeal as I close. When I came to Jesus, I did not become an asexual being. I remained anatomically a man because that's the way God made me. At the same time, when I embraced Christ as Savior at the age of 15, I did not get elevated and escalated up three, four tax brackets. I remained in the same position, unemployed as a 15-year-old. But when we look at that passage in Galatians 3.28, it says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor, sleeve, male nor female, bondservant nor slave. What is he saying? He's saying salvation is open to any and everyone regardless of ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status. However, the reality of gender, ethnicity, and economic status is a present reality for every single person living. So inasmuch as I am still a man, and people tell me be a biblical man, Inasmuch as I have a socioeconomic responsibility to be employed and to provide for my family, people say, practice good stewardship. When it comes to my ethnicity, people want to say, oh, no, 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 there's no Jew nor Greek. But wait a minute. You don't tell me to stop being a man, and you don't tell me to stop working and have a good, healthy work ethic to provide for my family. So why all of a sudden are you telling me to stop being Mexican? 
Why are you telling me to stop being this? Why are you telling my brother and sister to stop being black, stop being Korean, stop being Armenian? They, they can't stop being these things. So what do we do? We affirm it, and we build deep, meaningful relationships, and we show the world that this is the power of the gospel that they can't figure out. So they must pursue us and be jealous for the fellowship that we have that they on paper say is the only way to move forward. Father, I thank you for the time that I've had with my brothers and my sisters. I pray, Holy Spirit, through all the gaps of my communication, that you would allow things to cement in our hearts, that we would be mobilized to diversify our dinner tables, mobilized to engage with non-believers of different backgrounds and socioeconomic realities and sinful orientations that we just can't agree with as the people of God. However, make us jealous to share the gospel with them and the implications of the gospel message. May we seek to build long-lasting relationships, not just with those that are in the world as we live distinctly Christian, but rather even those within the body of Christ that we seek to serve and love each other, to show the world that there is a unity that we possess that they know not of, and the only way to drink from the wells of the living waters to embrace Christ so they can be welcomed into our unity is the body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, let's thank you. Come on.